begin our time this morning uh, reading to you some lyrics that are very appropriate to our passage, although they're going to sound out of context. Here they are. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room in heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks and hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the light of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Being a Christian for as many years as I have been, it's, it's always odd to me when we read the Bible, and I can read it with some friends, the very astonishingly different experiences or perspectives we might walk away from reading the very same passage. This morning, as you heard Chris read to us, we read are going to be studying three separate and distinct vignettes, all recounting the miraculous power of Jesus. The deliverance of the Syrophoenician's daughter, or Syrophoenician, the deliverance of the Syrophoenician daughter in chapter 7, verse 24 to 30. The healing of the deaf and mute man in chapter 7, verse 31 to 37. And finally, the feeding of the 4,000 in chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. And often, what's always astounding me is the reactions that people tend to get when they read those texts of Scripture. It's always very odd. They'll, they'll say things like, did, did Jesus just call this woman a dog, right? Or, or why does Jesus have to put his fingers in their ear and pull a guy's tongue? Or my favorite is, this is the same miracle we just read from a few chapters ago. This must mean that the Bible's flawed because Mark can't even keep straight his own miracles. And it's amazing how much, and we don't even realize this, but this goes to my point from last week, how much our, our politically correct, cynical, rationalistic worldview actually blunts us to reading the absolute unallowed joy that's in the passage because that's exactly the response of every individual in all three of these vignettes. If your child were saved from death's door, the last thing you care about is political correctness, let alone social etiquette. If you've been deaf all your life and have only known the absolute isolation of silence, you don't care what they stuck in your ear if now you can hear the singing of birds, the voices of your friends, or the, the rustle of the leaves as the wind blows through. If you've ever known destitution and going without, you don't care that what you might be receiving is some hand-me-down miracle that somebody else got to experience first. Your response is going to be mind-blowing joy over what happened. One of the ways I was going to get into this sermon this morning was to show you clips from YouTube of babies and of teenagers and of adults being able to hear for the first time through cochlear implants. And, and, and the reason I didn't was I was just crying too much. And I thought, there's just no way. This is not a good way to start when we're all just bawling. But I just realized how often we read the Bible and we approach it with rationalism and, and kind of a cynicism and questions and miss the point of absolute joy that would have been experienced in all of these narratives. And that's exactly what we're looking at this morning. In other words, we are actually still experiencing um, what Jesus said in the very beginning of Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verse 15, when Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. 
the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, the one distinction between when Jesus actually says that and the way I'm applying it here to these two chapters is when Jesus proclaimed that good news, it was to the Jewish people, and it was the Jewish people who experienced the kingdom of God and its effects taking place in their lives that we saw so powerfully in chapter one. Now, in Mark's narrative, before we come to the, the, the kind of the hinge point of the gospel, let me take you back weeks ago when we did the introduction, Mark is divided into two broad sections. Chapter 1 up through chapter 8, verse 30 is section 1 or part 1, and then part 2 is chapter 8, verse 31 to the remainder of the book. And what part two begins to focus on at the climax that we'll look at next week, and then we'll take a break over the summer to study the minor prophets, but at the climax, Peter finally gets it. He says, you are the Christ, and immediately the entire narrative shifts. Jerusalem and the cross becomes very much in focus, and Jesus begins to talk specifically about his plan of redemption to save humanity through his suffering and death. But before that moment happens, it's as if Mark wants to make really clear that this Jesus is not just the Savior, that the kingdom of God is not just something for the the Jews and the Jews alone, but this reality, this hope, this message is for all of humanity, what we would call the Gentile world, which with the exception of a handful of uh, Jews who become Christians in our congregation, most of us are Gentiles. Right? And so it's not a surprise that every single vignette we look at this morning is happening to a Gentile in Gentile lands. And to put it bluntly, Max, our junior high director, when we were talking about this passage Tuesday morning, said, this is clear that God is for everyone, that the hope of the gospel is not limited to a certain class of people, not a certain ethnicity, not for a certain group, but God is making it clear that His joy is for all humanity, and that is the engine of the gospel message. It is one of joy, and it can be easily missed when we're so familiar or we read this as if it were literature and not reading it with a kind of creative, sanctified imagination. And so when we read those passages, we tend to have questions rather than experiences. Could you imagine, and, and, and we're going to read, well, I'll save that for when we read it, but this whole, these whole chapters ooze with joy. So let's look at them one at a time as all three of these vignettes also are, are building to us and, and helping us see, and we're going to take the time to do that, God's redemptive plan that He had promised as far back as Genesis 12 is coming to fulfillment, and we're seeing the realities of that right in these two chapters. So with a lot to cover, let's get into it. Point one is the Syrophoenician's daughter in chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. Now, uh, verses 25 and 26, they, it sets up this first vignette pretty nicely for us. Basically, the scene is there is a, a mother who's speaking to Jesus, ba- basically begging and imploring Jesus to cast an unclean spirit out of her daughter. Now, unclean is just a, a, a kind of mild way of saying that she was demon-possessed. And so you can imagine the fear that's gripped her. So she comes to, to Jesus as she's heard about him. And the problem is, right out of the gate, uh, this woman has three strikes against her, okay? and, and, and it's, again, we are 2,000 years removed, we're living on the west coast of California, we don't see this, but if you just actually stop and think about it, you know this too, number, strike number one, she's a woman, 
right? I know that's shocking to hear in 21st century here in a pulpit here, but remember in a patriarchal society in the first century of antiquity, especially in Palestine, that's a big deal. That's a strike against you. A woman had no value. They were not respected. A woman's testimony, in fact, could not be valued in a court of law because women were, after all, just women. They, they couldn't keep the facts straight. They didn't have value that way. It's very scandalous for us to hear that, and it certainly ought to because it is, because the Bible clearly teaches in Genesis 1 that we were each male and female made in the image of God. But it occurs to me how often in the gospel narratives, for example, who were the first to discover the tomb was empty? Women. Who do we often see Jesus speaking to? Women. And to us, we read that and we don't blink an eye. Of course, why not? But the scandal that that caused, can you imagine being the recipients of the letter of Mark's letter and you're looking at it and going, women, a, a woman came to, a woman's talking to Jesus and he's interacting with her. Now, if you were to make something up, if you were going to make up a world religion, you would not make your primary testimony coming on the lips of women. But how often we see that in the Gospels. We forget how radically countercultural and liberating the Gospel message was. But that is her first strike. She's a woman. Strike number two, she's not just a woman. She's a Gentile woman. Now, it's bad enough that it's a woman that's coming up to the teacher to talk to him. But she's not even a Jewish woman. If you were a Jewish woman, at least she'd be part of the covenant community. She'd have a value because of her connection to Abraham and give her some standing as a member of the covenant people. But she's Gentile. How dare a Gentile woman have this kind of audaciousness to approach Jesus? Strike three. She's not just a Gentile woman. Mark makes sure to tell us She's a Syrophoenician of birth. Those Syrophoenician, man, we do not like the Syrophoenicians. So, so let me show you a map. I'm going to show you a lot of maps today. Uh, on the right is a, obviously, a, 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 you can see kind of where we're at. You see Galilee and there's a blue lake. That's the Sea of Galilee where most of our action has taken place. And then to the, uh, on the left-hand side and on the left, you see this red blot. You can't probably see it, but it says Tyre. So I'm trying to give you a kind of locate us, that that's where we're taking place, in that area of Tyre. And then you see that's the Phoenician kind of region there. This woman was born in, a Syrophon in Syria, Phoenicia. So modern-day Syria, that kind of area overlaps. She's a Syrophoenician. The reason that that is important is that you, these are very polar opposite kinds of people. I mean, we already talked about her being a, Jew, a Gentile woman. But imagine, to give you a sense of the socioeconomic cultural distance between her and Jesus, imagine a, a, a young, uh, wealthy woman from Cota de Casa talking to a community leader in Boyle Heights, right? I mean, if, if you can understand the difference socioeconomic and culturally, it's that much more and tenfold. And, and for, for example, not only the, the issue of the Syrophoenicians and the tensions that she's from Tyre, Tyre as a city always gained off of Galilee's losses, both historically and economically. Historically, every time Tyre's mentioned in the Bible, uh, it is they're the recipients of God's judgment or wrath because of their animosity towards the Jews and the way they've treated them. So if you're a note taker, you can write down um, Joel chapter three, verse five and six. 
Uh, God asks them, as he's, as he's judging them, he asks them basically, why did you take the gold and my riches from my temple for yourself? So they hijacked the gold. They were part of the people who pillaged the temple. And why did you sell my people to the Greeks to get them away from your borders? So in other words, during probably the time of Alexander the Great and the conquest, the, the Tyrrhenians basically gave up the Jews and the, those in Judea and Jerusalem to the Greeks, sold them off as slaves so that they don't have them at their borders anymore. Every time Tyre's mentioned, you look in Zechariah, you look at the book of the prophet Amos, it's not a good situation between the Jews and the, the people who live in Tyre. Economically, even to this day, um, the bread that was grown in the Galilean countryside didn't go to feed Galileans, it went to the residents of Tyre. So Acts chapter 12, verse 20, Herod is having to deal. He's angry with this, these people from Tyre and Sidon because there's this dispute about they want more bread now. And so, Tyre always prospered off of Galilee's losses, so it's within this kind of tension, that's the context of this relationship as she comes to speak to Jesus. But besides all of this, it is still just a mom concerned about her daughter, and she just wants some help. Surely, there's a sense of humanity that Jesus is going to connect with here, but we see in verse 27, Jesus seems to say something very odd and very off-putting in our ears. He says, she begs him to cast the demon out of her daughter, in verse 27, and he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, that seems pretty harsh. Question is, is it really? You see, in verses 27 to 29, we see a real profound interaction between Jesus and this woman that's amazing. Jesus, as he always does, is speaking to her in parables. Actually, he speaks to everyone in parables. We've been seeing that for chapter after chapter. What makes this woman, however, amazing is that she responds to Jesus both within the metaphor and the context of the parable he just spoke to her. In other words, she hears what he says, she processes it, she gets it, and then she responds in context using the same metaphor, displaying an amazing level of understanding, humility, and insight that Jesus has not come across, not from the Jews or even his own disciples. So let's look at some of the questions Jesus has been asking his disciples. Mark 7, 18, and he said to the disciples, then are you also without understanding? Mark chapter 6, verse 52, for they, the disciples, did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And then Mark chapter 4, verse 13, and Jesus said to them, his disciples, do you not understand this parable? So it's clear that here's a Syrophoenician woman, Jesus throws out a parable, she doesn't miss a beat, she gets it, and she responds in context using the same metaphor, and Jesus is so blown away, he says to her at verse 29, 30, your faith, actually Matthew 15, the parallel passage tells us, Jesus says, your faith is great, may it be to you as you desire. And she goes home and she sees her daughter in bed with the unclean spirit gone. Imagine the joy this woman's feeling. Imagine the joy that Jesus is feeling because here's this woman that gets it. She is astounding. Now, 
Jesus' response to her, let's back up and look at that. What, what is he talking about? Let the children have the bread first and the, it's not good to give the crumbs to the dogs. That, that's what's going on there. You see, Jesus' answer to the woman is merely referring to the special place of the Jews in God's plan at this point in history. Keep in mind, friends, Jesus was the Jewish Christ. I see this is where our 2,000 years of kind of Christian history, again, sometimes works against us. Jesus was the Jewish Christ. He came to save his people. So keep your finger in Mark. Turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 883. Romans chapter 1. There is a plan that God has always been working out. He has his plans, his purposes, his priorities that, that, that contextualize his promises. And it was first to the Jews because he was creating a people to understand and reveal himself, a people to be a priest to the nations around him, right? So there was an order that had to be worked out. And we see that here in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now switch to Romans chapter two, verse nine. We get the same kind of priority order we see there. Paul writes, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Now, Greek is a kind of a, a metonym for Gentiles, right? It means everybody. So we see that Paul is talking about and reminding, and the woman understands, and Jesus is reestablishing, there's a priority. He's speaking of God's uh, priority of salvation grace that first comes to the Jews because those are his children. And this Syrophoenician woman would have known, like everyone did, that the, the, the Israelites were called the children of Israel. They were also the children of God. We see this, this kind of concept all through the Scriptures, and a Syrophoenician woman would have been familiar. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, the Lord says, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Deuteronomy 14, 1, you are the sons of the Lord your God. And then I should have probably cut off, you shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. But, but the point being that God is again saying, you are my sons. We also see this in Hosea 1.10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And then finally, Isaiah 1.2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The point being that this concept that the Israelites were the children were very, was very, very well known. And Jesus was reestablishing God's priority in salvation grace. But notice the insight, the humility, and the wisdom of this Syrophoenician woman Verse 28, first of all, she calls Jesus Lord. She's a Gentile. 
He's not her Lord, yet she recognizes, she's foreshadowing the fact that one day the Gentiles will call Jesus Lord as sure as anyone else. And notice in Mark's gospel, who are the individuals who often recognize who Jesus is? It is not the Jews. It is not his own people. It is a Syrophoenician woman here. It is a Roman centurion in Mark chapter 5. It is often the people who are on the outside who recognize who Jesus is, and she's a foreshadowing, foreshadowing by calling Him Lord. Secondly, this woman seems to get God's order that the Jews were God's people. She doesn't even challenge the parable. She doesn't even challenge the notion. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 15, verse 22, which is the parallel text to this, this chapter, she recognizes him as son of, she says, calls him son of David. She recognizes that he's in the royal lineage of King David of the Jews himself. And she acknowledges that and submits to that reality. She knows she does not have a claim on Jesus. She knows she does not have a demand upon Jesus. I hope you're recognizing some of these words because this is exactly what Mark chapter 3 was trying to teach us. The ones that are truly Jesus' family, they know they don't have a demand or a claim on Jesus. Jesus has demands and claims on them. And this woman gets that very clearly because she is a Gentile. She's on the outside. And friends, we get a big lesson from this woman. Our big, biggest asset, our biggest asset in coming to Jesus is the genuine realization that all we come with are liabilities. This woman got that. In other words, the, 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 the best thing you bring to the table is the recognition that you don't bring anything to the table when it comes to bargaining with Jesus, right? Because we all tend to bargain with Jesus. We want him to do certain things for us. The best thing you bring is realizing you don't bring a single thing. Your biggest asset is realizing all you brought are liabilities. And this Syrophoenician woman gets it. There is no ounce of self-righteousness. There's no ounce of entitlement. She says, but Lord, even the kids. So in the, in the parable, the children are the Jews. The bread is the gospel, the gospel, uh, the power and the promises of the gospel. And the dogs are the Gentiles, right? That's clear. She gets that. And she says, but Lord, even the dogs, they get the little crumbs that fall off and they can lap that up. Hey, whatever little bit I can get, that's all I need. I get it. This woman displayed a humility and wisdom. And third and finally, she must have known the Old Testament. Because notice what she says, that, that, there's, that there's from the Jews an overflow to the Gentiles, the crumbs that come off. Even I can get some of that. Now, I want to take you to um, Genesis 3. So, if, uh, page 8, if you're using a pew Bible. Excuse me, Genesis 12. Genesis 12. She must have known the promises given to the Jewish people because she's assuming them when she talks to Jesus Christ. So in Genesis 12, the covenant that God gives to Abram, this is what he says. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse 
and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this woman, she gets it. She gets it in a way that the religious leaders, even the disciples, do not understand. She gets it so well, she can dialogue back to Jesus using the same metaphors he's using. And he says to her, he says, because of your statement, you may go. You have what you want. And she goes home to joy seeing her daughter delivered. Second vignette that we look at. And this vignette's very interesting. It is historical, like the Syrophoenician woman, but it's also very symbolic, like the Syrophoenician woman. And what I mean by that is, um, Lori told me, I should inform you, so you often hear me say, hey, in the parallel account, go to Matthew, and sometimes Luke says that. There's an actual book you can buy. It's called the Harmony of the Gospels. Harmony, it harmonizes the Gospels. You can get it on Amazon. Just type in Harmony of the Gospels. Um, if you're a note-taker, write down Gundry, um, the reason I say G-U-N-D-R-Y. Um, there are liberals out there who have these, and they're all really just messed up. So Gundry's a good one. The point is, they look at the four gospel narratives, and they kind of harmonize. So what play takes place in Mark 7 and 8 is exactly what took place in Matthew 15. So that's how we see that, and we can compare the similarities and differences, and it's really helpful, like right now. So go to Matthew 15, where Matthew talks about the very same chapters we've been studying for the last two weeks. Matthew chapter 15, and if you have a Bible that has headings on it, you already recognize them. Traditions of the elders and commandments, what defiles a person, the faith of the Canaanite woman because she lived in, in the area of Cana as well. And so, so you can see that this is basically Matthew's take on everything we've been studying for the last couple of weeks. Notice what, how Matthew records what we're about to study in Mark 7, 31 to 37. We see here in Matthew chapter 15, verse 30 and following. And great crowds came to Jesus, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled, healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. You can go back to Mark. What's interesting about Mark's account, although he talks about people bringing the blind, the lame, the crippled, and all that, Mark just says like one sentence about it, and then zeroes in on one specific healing miracle of this deaf and mute man. Matthew doesn't even bother talking about it. He just, he just lumps them in with the crowd. But Mark zeroes in and spends seven verses talking about this. So the question we have to ask is, what was Mark's purpose in highlighting this one particular miracle over the great amount of miracles Jesus did? How does it drive Mark's narrative forward? And the answer lies not in the unusual way that Jesus healed him which is what a lot of people, why is he, you know, somebody said he gives him a wet willy and pulls on his, this is crazy. That's not where the answer lies. The answer is in what the man endures. So what I mean by that is, look, you look at verse 32, Mark says that this man had a speech impediment. Now the word for speech impediment in the Greek, um, mogilalos, appears nowhere else in the New Testament. Actually, the only other time this word appears anywhere in the Bible is in the chapter 35 of Isaiah. 
This is what Isaiah says. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mogialis sing for joy. That's what we translate the word mute. That's the, in, in, so in the English, you read mute, and then in Mark, you read speech impediment, but in the original language, it's the same word. They're just translating it somewhat differently. The only time these words are used is in Mark 30, uh, 7.32 and Isaiah 35. Mark is establishing a link to this because the context of Isaiah 35, this is the last chapter in Isaiah. Isaiah is an amazing book. Um, before uh, two transitionary chapters, and then God turns the corner from judgment upon the nations to the divine uh, eschatological end times blessings that God is going to bring at, and the joy at the revelation of the Lord Himself. So the allusion to Isaiah 35 fits perfectly Mark's desire to reveal Jesus as the Lord who redeems humanity and creation. The freeing of the tongue of the mute signals the arrival of the day of the Lord in Isaiah 35. But more to the point, Isaiah 35 writes about the joy of Lebanon. So look at verse 2, just a few verses before what we're looking at. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of God. Do you want to take a guess where these miracles are taking place? In, in Lebanon. You can see on the map, there's Tyre, there's Sidon, the area that Jesus is ministering. There's Lebanon. Let me show you another map that kind of shows you how far-reaching the, the, the area is. It is not a coincidence, friends, that Jesus, well, Mark has zeroed in on a mute man and frees his tongue to declare praises. And the only other time that word is used is in the context of the mute being giving praise to God at the revelation of God himself to bring blessings taking place in Lebanon, the same area that this miracle takes place. Mark is making a link here, that this man being able to hear and his tongue being loose is the beginning of the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that the day of the Lord has arrived and there's going to be singing and rejoicing because of who he is. But it also fits Mark's narrative that hearing, being able to hear the voice of Christ, the words of the Lord, is an act of God himself because there are many people who hear his words, but they're deaf to his message. So being able to hear the Lord is a supernatural act of grace. And so Mark is kind of getting two for one and zeroing in on this one miracle. Now, I, I, let, me, let me back up a little bit and talk a little bit again about the Syrophoenician woman because remember, this is all taking place in the same area. God is showing that the gospel is breaking past and the fulfillment that the Gentiles, that the prophets hundreds of years ago were looking forward to, it is happening and it's happening right here. Now, if you're in Isaiah, or go with me again to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, page 536, if you're using one of our pew Bibles. Um, and I didn't intend to use very Christmassy kind of passages 
But, I mean, this is what the Christmas season is about. It's about the joy of God coming to humanity. And Isaiah 9 is another very famous uh, Christmas passage, right? This is where we talk about, for unto us a child is born, the same passage. But I want to read to you what Isaiah says. And you're going to hear things you don't recognize. I'll put it together, right? I'll, I'm just going to set it up. Isaiah 9, 1 and 2 is what we're going to read. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, maybe your translation says Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in the land of the deep darkness, on them a light has shined." Now you're saying, okay, what's these words, Zebulun, Naphtali? Let me show you another diagram up here. Same geographical location. Zebulun and Naphtali were the tribal names of the 12 tribes of Israel, just like Asher, Issachar, Manasseh. This is the same geographical region that we're studying in Mark 7 and 8. This is the same geographical region that Isaiah 35 is talking about and Isaiah 9. Now what Isaiah is talking about when he says that um, verse 9, verse 1 of chapter 9, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. During Isaiah's prophecy, this is when Assyria came in and basically demolished the northern tribes of Israel and took them away. And what they left behind, the Assyrians left behind an occupying citizenry all in this region because the only way to come down for Assyria was to come to the north. So the land of Zebulun and Naphtali were decimated. The contempt shown them was because of their disobedience, they got punished first. And all that area was then occupied by Assyrians and Gentiles, so much so that it was then called the land or the Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the nations, because the nations that decimated Israel had left occupying citizens in those areas. And now he's saying, but no more, because now in Galilee of the Gentiles, there will be a great light shown. Those who walk in darkness, what's he talking about? It's not a coincidence, friends, that Jesus' ministry takes place where primarily? Galilee. It's because exactly what the prophets had foretold, where they were in darkness, they will see a great light. Matthew chapter 4, verse 15, directly links it. It says, the reason Jesus went to Galilee was so that it would be fulfilled what Isaiah 9 says, that those who walk in darkness now see a great light, and Mark is saying, this is what we're seeing. We are seeing the great light that Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 9. We're seeing the revelation of the Lord that Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 35, and it's all happening right before our eyes. And there was great joy. Friends, can, I encourage you, you, you want to just be humbled, and, and you want to see this passage, Mark 7 and 8, in, 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 in just like 3D, go Google on YouTube that people hearing for the first time. You will be brought to tears. You cannot read this passage the same. The, the, the joy, the, the ecstatic excitement, the tears, and, and, and you cannot miss the connection. God saying, that's what my kingdom's like. That is what my kingdom is like right there. We have to move on. The last vignette, and again, I ran out of time. <laughs> the last vignette. 
Um, and, and as I said in the introduction, people often get confused because they say, is this the same miracle that we read about in Mark 6? Uh, and, and I don't have time to get into it, although I have like two pages of research that definitely this is a separate miracle completely. As a matter of fact, in, in chapter 8, verse 19, Jesus refers to both of the feeding miracles, and they're very different accounts. So if they're the same miracle, then what we have in Mark 8 is a forgery, right? So Jesus is talking about two separate evidences of what's going on here. If you're the kind of person that needs to know how that's there, you can talk to me afterwards. Um, the point I want to get at, though, is unlike the feeding of the 5,000 that took place in predominantly Jewish lands, this feeding of the 4,000 takes place in the area of the Decapolis. Chapter 7, verse 31 tells us that that's the area they were at. Again, here's the same general uh, geographical area. Decapolis just means the 10 cities. They were, these were uh, 10 Hellenized cities. They were not Jewish cities. They were um, Greek culture, Gentile areas, so to speak. And Jesus performs the same kind of miracle, but communicating the same point, that Jesus is the bread that satisfies, that Jesus is the bread of life. More to the point, just like in the former miracle, Jesus doesn't just satisfy. There is a crazy overabundance that's collected towards the end. As Jesus provided for the Jews, Mark is saying, Jesus will provide for the Gentiles. Jesus will provide for everyone. It's not restricted to the Jews alone, that the gospel is transcending all of that. We don't necessarily see that in the gospel narratives, but that's certainly what the book of Acts and the epistles tells us. That's why we're here today. Well, again, I've run out of time, so let me see if I can button this up. In one sense, these three vignettes, they, in a very real sense, they show us God's deliverance, God's healing, God's provision. These are gospel motifs that the one on the outside is brought near, like the Syrophoenician woman. We were on the outside, and we were brought near because of Christ. That there is the one that is healed, that is able to hear the word of God. You're not a Christian because you were smart enough to figure it out. You are a Christian because by the grace of God, your ears were open and you recognized you were hearing words of life, right? And the gospel tells us, the Lord, he will, he will meet our need and then some, an overabundance, the joy that comes from that. But the reality is, we have to say, okay, I, I recognize in our congregation, what about those who, you know, you're living paycheck to paycheck, that's not abundance. You're looking at all these miracles and you're saying, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe God heals people, but I'm looking down the barrel of a cancer diagnosis. Maybe you have a friend or a family member who's struggling to shake an addiction, you're saying, well, where's our deliverance? Those are real questions, and they're hard questions. And I think the encouragement we get from Mark is a reminder, maybe from the first time, not the first time, or maybe the 400th time, this is not why you have chosen to follow Jesus. You're not like the crowds that we see so often following Jesus. You're not the ones that follow him for the bread. You're not following him for the, the benefits. You're not the ones following him for the miracles. Jesus did speak of those. You can write these passages down if you want to reference them later. Jesus did address those, and he knew who they were. And when they didn't get their bread, they didn't get their miracle, they left. And Jesus knew who they were. Many do that. I, just, I guess looking at it from another angle, what good does it do this Syrophoenician girl to be cleaned of an unclean spirit, yet she doesn't receive the Holy Spirit? 
What benefit would it be to this man to have his ears open so he can hear the Word of God, his tongue freed so he can sing his praise, but choose not to? These people who were fed, they're going to get hungry again, and they're going to need to eat again. The point Jesus is constantly making, and he made in John chapter 6 that I have on the screen, is that this world is darkness, disease, and want. If not literally, figuratively for us who live in the affluent West. That's what this world is. Jesus was saying, don't get distracted by my temporary miracles and thinking that's what I'm about. Every single thing I do is to point you to the reality of life that I bring. Do not get confused that I'm here to make bread like some simple miracle worker. I'm pointing to the reality that I'm the bread, and unlike this bread, once you have me, you never go hungry again. And friends, I can't answer why you still have that struggle any more than I can explain why some never have a struggle. But what we're hearing from the gospel is that this life is not this life. This life that we have that we think is, is reality, yes, it is a reality in one sense, but we gotta remember this is not the life we were made for. And the miracles remind us of that. Listen to this last thing. I'll close with this from the ESV Study Bible. We tend to see these miracles, and he's referring to the three vignettes we looked at, in the Gospels as interruptions of the natural order. Yet given the promises of the Old Testament to restore the world to the way it was at the very beginning, miracles are not an interruption of the natural order, but the restoration of the natural order. We are so used to a fallen world that sickness, disease, pain, and death seem natural. In fact, they are the interruption. Jesus' supernatural miracles are a return to the truly natural or the truly normal. Friends, it would be great that we have the temporary miracles that we often seek But if that is what we're always looking at, we're we're missing the very point that Mark's been trying to communicate, that the world he brings is the exact opposite of these things. And the world we inhabit, we're just passing through. And sometimes, sometimes, and we see this in the gospel and the epistles actually, God allows these very things to loosen our grip on this world to break us of the reality that this is not the world I want to be a part of so that we can grab on to the one that truly matters. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we just kind of dove right into this amazing passage to remind us of all that you are doing has been what's promised to us since as far back as the book of Genesis. And we see it being unveiled, revealed in Mark 7 and 8. Father, it just seems like we're getting to the really good stuff, and yet just in a moment when Peter and the disciples connect the dots, it seems like it's time to wrap it up and go. But that is so much what this life is like, a fevered rehearsal for a performance that none of us can stay behind to play. Father, you are preparing us for something far greater than the enjoyment of this life but an eternity with you in the new creation. Father, help us to see this life in light of that life, in the life of Christ. And we'll thank you for it in his name. Amen. 
Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.